have going on tonight. Heavenly Father, thank you for this night. Uh, we thank you for your love for us and your goodness toward us. We thank you for your word that gives us the information we need to have to, to know who you are and what you said. And we just ask that as we study that uh, you would open our hearts and our minds to hear your truth and that uh, you would speak uh, through your word to us. So Lord, have your way in our hearts and uh, just bless our time together. Lord, we do pray for Tom with the recovery for the hip surgery he just went through. And uh, we pray for uh, Josh's co-workers who uh, have uh, not fared very well um, in their uh, place of employment. So Lord, just pray for uh, recovery and recuperation, uh, that they're able to be back at work soon. And Lord, that you'd use Josh uh, to maybe come alongside them, uh, those he knows, uh, to share the truth of who you are. So, Lord, again, we just thank you for tonight. We thank you for this opportunity we have to to uh, study further. Just uh, guide us, we ask, in your son's wonderful name. Amen. All right. So tonight we've got uh, two major uh, subjects we'll talk about. and One is uh, the very end of our study of God's Word. And then the second is uh, the beginning uh, of our study of the doctrine of God. And uh, so... We'll see how far we can get uh, in terms of unpacking these things. Um, uh, <laughs> I'm not sure we'll get through it all, but we'll give it a shot. So uh, as I get my clicker here, let's see if we can make this thing work. So here we go. In terms of the sufficiency of Scripture, we've talked about clarity. <clears throat> we've talked about necessity. We've talked about a whole host of things associated with Scripture, but now we're going to talk about sufficiency. The question here is, is the Bible enough for knowing what God wants us to think or do? Is the Bible uh, enough? Is it sufficient for us? Um, in other words, is there something else we should be looking for in this world to understand who God is? Uh, is there some other document? Is there some inner, some inner knowledge that we should have access to? So let's see how Wayne Grudem begins to unpack unpack this uh, point here by way of his systematic theology. Wayne offers a definition here initially where he says the sufficiency of Scripture means that Scripture contained all the words of God he intended his people to have at each stage of redemptive history and that it now contains all the words of God we need for salvation, for trusting him perfectly, and for obeying him perfectly. Well, that's kind of a mouthful. It's not a very short definition. <clears throat> There's a lot there. Uh, so as you hear that definition, um, what's striking you or what questions might come from a definition like this for you? Okay, this, this is enough. Okay, what else could you say? What does that mean to you? There's the there's the here and the now aspect of uh, what you're referring to in terms of God's revelation to us. But what he's what Wayne is putting forward is that throughout uh, history of mankind, if you will, God has given His truth sufficiently for that time uh, in history. 
whether we go back to the patriarchs, uh, whether we go back to the time of the church. And, and so that's the history or the redemptive history that he's referring to from the biblical past. Welcome. Did you, oh, you guys got sheep in the book. So, so we just started the first slide, so congratulations. We just finished today. So definition. Sufficient of Scripture means that Scripture contained all the words of God he intended his people to have at each stage of redemptive history, uh, the history of the Bible, if you will, uh, and which reflects the history of the world, and that it now contains all the words of God we need for salvation, for trusting him perfectly and for obeying him perfectly. Now, one of the things I'd question right off the bat is, really? Uh, you know, I, that's what I'm going to wrestle with. Uh, I, I don't always trust and I don't always obey. But there's enough information that I could or should have been able to. But this is why we ultimately trust, right? So, so here we go as we unpack this. In terms of scriptural support for salvation, 2 Timothy 3.15, and how from childhood, this is the Apostle Paul writing to Timothy, <coughs> reminding Timothy that how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Uh, we know in earlier passages uh, that Paul is referring to Timothy's childhood being raised by two women, a mother and grandmother, who knows their names? That's for three points. Eunice. Well, I'll have to let you look that up. You'll find it in the the the, uh, the front matter of First uh, Timothy, I believe. So, how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings? In other words, it was the sacred writings that your mom and your grandmother taught you, Tim, that gave you an understanding of salvation that's found in Christ Jesus. So, so it is sufficient, it seems to be saying. Lois and Eunice, way to go. James 1.18, of, of his own, he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. Uh, it's 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 God who brings us forth by the word of His truth. It's sufficient to do that, uh, as we are the first fruits of His creatures. Peter, uh, one of the, the the three musketeers, right? Peter, James, and John are three best buddies of Jesus. Since you've been born again, not of perishable seed, but of the imperishable, how? Through the living and abiding Word of God. So we're seeing quite a bit here that. It's God's word that is sufficient to us unto salvation, right? Is there some other way we should be conveying the gospel other than through God's word? Answer, no. It's the power of God's word that brings the conviction, that brings the change of heart by the way of the Holy Spirit working in and through his word. And so this is huge. This is important to us as believers. Scriptural support for training and equipping. We're reminded in 2 Timothy 3 that all Scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be completely equipped for every good work. It's sufficient for training us and equipping us. So technically, do we really need a systematic theology? No, we really don't. 
might use it as a guide, but what should it do? It should point us back to this. And it does. And Wayne's uh, done a good job of that. Psalm 119.1, blessed are those whose way is blameless who walk in the law of the Lord. Notice the association by way of the, the poetry here. Blessed are those whose way is blameless. Basically, blessed are those who walk in the law of the Lord. Blessedness comes to those who are walking the law of the Lord, which brings about what? Blamelessness. That's the training aspect of God's word, the power behind it for equipping us for his work. All right? So the, the only way that we can be we can grow, if you will, in our walk with God is by way of having access to Scripture. Uh, I don't know about you, but whenever you start getting away from God's word, that's where I get in, start getting in trouble. That's where things start not going very well for me. Secondly here, we can find all that God has said on particular topics and we can find answers to our questions. Um, now, are we going to get answers to questions regarding nuclear physics? Maybe not, right? Some fundamental about nuclear physics, we might get some in, you know, answers about God creating it all, God sustaining it all um, by, by the power of his word. So we have some fundamentals here, but but in terms of living life and having theological uh, questions answered, God's word is sufficient for this. So by way of an example of this kind of sufficiency that we're talking about, I'd like to demonstrate for you uh, for a few minutes here, we'll have a good time doing this, the consistency of God's law throughout biblical history through scripture alone. A lot of times we read this book and by way of what, what we call progressive revelation, where God continues to give more information about himself and what he's called us to do, uh, we might think that, well, gee whiz, it seems like God keeps changing the rules. You know, the Old Testament has one set of rules. The New Testament seems to have a different set of rules. Well, you know, what's the deal? Changing all the rules all the time. Well, I'd like to demonstrate for you that that's not the case at all. Rules are not changing. They may be put forth in a different way, but they're not being changed. So to demonstrate this, let's take a look at three major passages, uh, the first one being in Genesis 1. And I've broached this topic in the sermon series that we've done by way of our Back to the Beginning series, the Genesis account. But in Genesis chapter 1, we see what's known as the creation ordinances. And you go, what, what is that? What are the creation ordinances? Well, there were some things that God outlined for us to do at the very, very beginning uh, of his word. And we find this in verse 28 of chapter 1, where it says, And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the, every living thing that moves on the earth. So, um, there are three ordinances here listed, so creation ordinances. And what do you suppose the first one is here? God said what? 
No, no, verse 28. Be fruitful and multiply. He called us to be fruitful and multiply. So this is the first ordinance. And basically along with it, this is idea of filling the earth, right? Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. That's the same concept, filling the earth by way of what's, you know, how we're being fruitful and multiplying. Man, it's scribbled all over here. So this is the idea of, if you will, progeny. Children. Uh, if you will, descendants. Descendants. Or dare I say, seed. Part of the seed line. Okay, be fruitful and multiply. Secondly, what are we called to do? Subdue it. Subdue it. We're to subdue the planet. In chapter 2, we're told very clearly that we, are, we were put in the garden to do what in the garden? To tend it or keep it. So subdue, keep, tend. Are you ready? God ordains work. Cultivation, we could say. Cultivation. Uh, God called us to cultivate, subdue the earth. Now, let me just give you an example of how powerful this commandment is for us. Everything in this room has been cultivated. <laughs> Everything. The table, the ceiling, the machine, the pen. We've taken elements out of the earth and we've cultivated into everything fixture in here. We're pretty good at it. Matter of fact, we have to understand, we don't, we don't see it this way, that work was ordained before the fall and it was good. It was good for us to cultivate and develop and subdue. So, so Adam goes to bed the first night, right? And he wakes up with a crick in his neck. <laughs> and so, hey, maybe I'm going to Grab some heather over here and fluff that up there. And and he starts cultivating, right? And, you know, over time, bad, right? He would like to sit down somewhere. Well, okay, well, I need, you know, chair. And, you know, we got all kinds of different chairs all over the planet, all the way from, you know, a chair like this to a throne, right? Or or where you, where you sit in the restroom, another throne. Okay, so we cultivate and we make things easy for us, nicer. And we can't really stop doing that. Now, prior to the fall, it was awesome because it was full of meaning, full of purpose. It wasn't a factory line like we have now. It wasn't this drudgery or this horrible thing I hate to do, but they pay me, so I'll keep doing it. It was, it was awesome. I mean, we can hardly imagine a time when work was awesome and it was good. And by the way, you know how it is when you have some vacation after a couple of weeks. You're like, oh, there's nothing to do. And so we go, we make ourselves do stuff. When I was in the insurance business, I ran into the most amazing people who would work at crazy stuff, collecting crazy things. I'll tell you about the guy with the Smurf room. Did I ever tell you about that guy? He collected Smurfs. He had Smurfs from all over the world. Big Smurfs, little Smurfs. He was nuts. He had a, a 
big room above his garage are all all Smurfs. The only thing else in the room was his treadmill. So he'd go there and he'd go for a walk with his Smurfs. You know? I'm like, really? Bottle caps, beer cans. I mean, Woolworth stamps. We'll collect all kinds of crazy stuff. We'll work at it. We, we want. I want more. You know why? You know that's why God designed us this way. We were we move. We go. We do. We're called to see fruit. Thirdly, you rule. Right, dominion was the idea. Dominion. So, what does God ordain here? You ready? Government. <laughs> you mean before the fall? God ordained government, and it was awesome? Yes. It was good. We can't even imagine it now. But God was the ultimate authority, right? And God basically said, you know, Adam and Eve, you're the first king and queen of all creation. You're to, you're to rule over everything. And it was good. There was justice. There was honor. There was respect. So rule, dominion, government. Um, <laughs> fourthly, now you go, where's the fourth one? I don't see the fourth one in verse 21. The first part of chapter 2, what does God ordain? Rest, Sabbath. God ordains Sabbath or Shabbat. One day a week, I want you to stop the work, stop the cultivating, and enjoy me in the garden that I made for you. No cultivation, no need to subdue that day. Just enjoy me. And rest. Take a break. Day five, or not day five, but ordinance five. At the end of chapter two, what does God ordain? What? Marriage. Ah. Now, I don't know about you, but I look at this, this idea, and I'm like, sign me up for this. I'm in. Where I can live in a world where I've got little people come up and squeeze my neck and call me dad or where our ladies call mom. What I do is has meaning and purpose. There's government. I'm under authority and I can exercise authority in my, my workplace or my home. And it can be right and just and good. One day a week I can just take a break and enjoy everything God's made and and I can do this with, with intimacy, with a life partner, where we have a unity and oneness that no one can explain. I'm like, sign me up for this is awesome. But what happened? Chapter 3, the fall. And all this was thrown out the window. Gone. So God starts to deal with the nation of Israel. Uh, let's see, this is Genesis 1 and 2. 
So as he starts to deal with the nation of Israel, we see in Exodus 20 a recapitulation of God's ordinances by way of the Ten Commandments. And what I want to demonstrate for you is how the Ten Commandments are not a new law. They are a reflection of the creation ordinances, but just put in a different way. And we're going to demonstrate how they're related. How so? What's the first commandment? No other gods, right? I'm going to try to abbreviate it. No other gods. And now I might say to you, which creation ordinance does this refer to? Three. (laughs) After I give a hit. This has to do with three. We were called to rule domain by God who is the ultimate authority, right? And so God reminds us, wait a minute, I'm the authority. I'm the ultimate authority. What's the second law? No idols. Which creation ordinance does this reflect? It's three. I'm God. No no, no other gods, no idols. I'm the authority. Hello? Number three. What's the third commandment? No name in vain. And I'd like to remind you that it has way more to do with how you live than with what you say. How do we know that? When God is talking to the nation of Israel, He he says to them on multiple occasions, You have profaned my name among the nations. Well, how'd they do that? Was it through them going around saying blankety blank? No. They profaned God's name among the nations through how they were living in rebellion against God. That's the issue. Does that make sense? It's I mean, yes, we should have honor and respect for God's name. We shouldn't be flippant with it. I totally, yes. But it's more than that. How dare I say that I'm a Christ person, a Christian, and then live otherwise? I have no right to do that. Because when I'm profaning his name, I'm I'm taking his name in vain. Okay, so no name. Which which creation ordinance is that? It's three again. What do you think God's trying to make a point here? I'm the authority. You guys seem to have a problem with that. I'm the authority, I'm the authority, I'm the authority. Hello. Okay? What's the fourth one? Keep Sabbath. Which creation ordinance? Number four. 
and lined up nicely. So next commandment. Honor what? Honor mom and dad. Which ordinance? We're back to three. In the family, there is this issue of domain, rule, and authority. Number six. No murder. Which creation ordinance? Try again. One, on what grounds? Yeah, how can you be fruitful multiplying if you're killing each other? No murder. Number seven. No adultery. Which ordinance? Number five. Number eight. No stealing. Careful on this one. Which one is it? Number two is correct. Why? I have no right to take your cultivation. (laughs) That's yours. It belongs to you. That's your work. Number nine. No false witness. This is a trick one. Which creation ordinance is this? Trick question. Try again. There you go. One through five, I would suggest. How so? I should have integrity with my children. I should have integrity in my work. I should have integrity in my government, my authority. I should have integrity in my rest. I should have integrity in my marriage. Absolutely. Across the board. How about ten? Do not covet what? No coveting neighbors, spouse, or stuff. <laughs> little abbreviation there. <laughs> two, three, and five. Okay, I agree. It's, I think there's at least two here, but I think it's related to two and five in particular. I have no right to take, I shouldn't be desiring your, your work, and I shouldn't be desiring your spouse. So, you see this? Has God changed the rules? Really not so much. He's restating them in a different way. Basically, and then this is in a very positive context. This is now in a very negative context. Alright? Then, so, you know, here, here we have creation, if you will. Here we have fall. And now we have redemption. It's always a good model for sorting out things. Should be consistent with the circle. And so now we move to the Sermon on the Mount. Which is Matthew 5 through 7. And we get to the text. And In this particular sermon, I would suggest to you that not everything is addressed. But a few things are, very poignantly, and you'll get the drift of where Jesus is going here. 
with how we could draw some conclusions. But in Matthew chapter 5, if you have your Bibles, I'd love for you to turn there. And in chapter 5, oh, let's see. Let's start with um, verse 21. You've heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not what? Murder. So which commandment are we talking about? Number 6, which is related to number 1 in the ordinances, right? Can you follow that back? You've heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to to judgment. But, I say to you, by the way, do you understand how inflammatory that phrase is? That is so inflammatory. All the Pharisees, all the people who are listening to Jesus' teaching here, and Jesus says, but I say to you. They're all going, what? What are you... Who do you think you are? But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Oh. My being angry with them is on par with murdering them? Didn't it just say, you've heard it was said, whoever murders will be liable to judgment. Now I'm just told if I'm angry with my brother, I'm liable to judgment. Oh. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says you fool will be liable to, to hell, the, to the hell of fire. Actually, in the Greek there, it's to, uh, Pyros Gehenna. Pyros is fire. Gehenna was the valley of garbage <laughs> at the south end of Jerusalem. That's hell, where the fire doesn't go out nor the worm dies. It just always wormy, always burns and stinks. Uh, you need to go there. You should go to hell. Um, you hear with me? Oh, by the way, in terms of we've got several, uh, by the way, this translation with the ESV, you've got anger, uh, and then uh, we said fool, that's consistent. Um, but the one that's a little missing, um, who, whoever insults his brother. Some translations, what do you have in your translation? Raka, you call your brother Raka. Um, and uh, which translated means uh, empty-headed person, <laughs> okay, basically. But so, what's a word for us today that we might use instead of raka? Idiot, jerk, moron, right? If you've said those, th- if you've thought those things, do you understand the issue here? Is God changing the rules? Is Jesus changing the rules here? What's he reminding us here? That our expression of God's law isn't necessarily just an external issue. It's a heart issue, right? See, the Jews were putting forth this idea that look how holy I look externally, you whitewashed sepulchers. You guys stink. And so the issue is, no, it's a, it's the heart, heart murder, if you will. No heart murder. That's not changing the rule. That's getting at the crux of it. That it's an issue from the heart. 
And that's just, you know, that's just one example here in terms of number five, um, in terms of the, I'm number six, rather, number six here in terms of the Ten Commandments. The very next passage, um, in verse 27 of the same sermon, you've heard that it was said you shall not commit adultery. Okay, which commandment? Number seven, no adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. <clears throat> if your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. Okay, you get the idea? What's he talking about here? We're now talking about not just outward adultery. We're talking about heart adultery. Okay, by way of number seven. We're going to see several of these things talk. We, we, we know throughout uh, the Gospels, we see teaching on Sabbath from Jesus in terms of how the Sabbath should really be applied. We see teaching on authority. We see teaching on cultivation as the, I mean, literal cultivation. He uses, you know, parables about planting all over the place. Uh, so these kinds of things are, are every, every one of these ordinances are addressed through D- Jesus' ongoing teaching throughout the Gospels. Now, by the way, you know, we go back to this and we go, man, this is awesome. And apart from Christ, you know, we're killing babies, we're killing each other. Apart from Christ, I mean, most people I know, they hate their job. They really don't like it. They do it. It's a drudgery. A lot of people just are really frustrated with work. We look at our government, it's totally messed up everywhere. Name one really good government on the planet. Okay, gave you enough time, we're done. Sabbath rest, I mean, how many of us even tonight were, were tired? Marriage is totally being destroyed, redefined, right? It's totally messed up. But now in Christ, by, by the grace of God, you know, even as I look at myself and I look at these things, these the beauty the beauty of God's design or ordinances here. You know, I've got these three girls who come squeeze my neck and call me dad. I don't deserve that. It's incredible. I love what I do. I really do. Um, it's good for me to be under the authority of the elders of this church. That's important for me to to be under. At the same time, it's important for me to to exercise authority justly uh, as a pastor uh, in my home, right? Um, a marriage uh, off the charts. So thankful for Kathy. Um, so again, because of, of Christ. The only one I'm wrestling with is which one? Rest. Yeah. <laughs> Still working on that. Uh, Someday. We should work harder at that. All right? Now, what, what's the point of all this? We're talking about the sufficiency of Scripture. We looked at these three things. We see the consistency of God's law throughout biblical history through Scripture alone. And it's sufficient for us, for how we should live. This becomes our ethic. Now, again, we know that keeping the law is impossible. I, I can't do it. This is why I need Christ. 
Why? Because he did keep all of the law. And he kept it very well. He was just like me, just like you, just like all of us, yet without sin, Scripture says. And he, uh, and actually Matthew 5, previous to the passages I just referenced, we see Jesus saying that I did not come to cast down or to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. And as a matter of fact, he says, I fulfill it from the standpoint that I fulfill every jot and tittle. What do you mean jot and tittle? Jot, yo, yot, yod, yod, and tilde. Yod and tilde, what's that? Well, there's two Hebrew letters there. I know it looks like one, but there are two Hebrew letters there. This is chet, this is hey. This little tilde, this connected tilde, tells me it's a hard chet. The open tilde tells me it's a hey. The smallest letter, to the smallest stroke, to the smallest letter. Yod in Hebrew is the smallest letter. That's what Jesus is talking about in Matthew 5. I've come to fulfill. So how important is verbal plenary inspiration <laughs> down to every yod and tilde, jot and tittle, the smallest stroke to the smallest letter? Isn't that awesome? Matthew 5, I'll show you exactly so you can know it. You see it? Do not think that I have come to abolish the law. The word in Greek here for abolish is to cast down and basically stomp on. Uh, or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, nor a dot. Uh, a lot of times you'll see some notes in the bottom of your Bible explaining what an iota and a dot is. Uh, but we're talking about every, uh, from the, smallest mark to the smallest letter uh, in terms of the Greek will pass from the law until all is accomplished. So, so there you have it. So all of this points me to Christ that I desperately need for salvation because he kept it all once and for all. Now we contrast this now, not by way of picking on anybody or being hurtful. I've lost my clicker here. Clicker. Oh, found it. Um, contrast this with the Catholic development of doctrine. And it's a totally different understanding of how to get it true. Because in Catholicism, you have a three-legged stool of authority, which include Scripture, church dogma, and papal authority. And any one of those can trump the other at any time. In other words, church dogma or church history in terms of how we've always done things can take on a, a power and authority all of its own over against what the Scriptures say. When the Pope sits down on the throne and speaks ex cathedra, he is putting forward God's Word afresh and anew. 
And if he says something contrary to Scripture, we've got a problem. All right? This is, this is not sufficient. <laughs> this is not good. And that's just one example. There's a whole host of other groups we could have picked on. We could have picked on the Mormons with one guy writing his huge volume, the Book of Mormon, in the Pearl of Great Price. Uh, completely inconsistent, almost everywhere. The motif of the, if, if you've ever read and understood the, the, the motif of the, the, the Mormon religion, one of their main featured arguments is this idea that Jesus had to appear in the Americas so that the gospel could get to the Native Americans who were the lost tribes of Israel. And you th- you listen to that and you think about it and go, well, that sounds compelling. Except when you find out that, you know, how many Native Americans are a part of the Mormon church? Like zero. It's a joke. It, 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 their, their founding motif doesn't even remotely come close to accomplishing what it set out to say it was supposed to. By the way, that's just the beginning of the elephant of that thing. There's so much more that's messed up. Don't get me started. Uh, but what we're getting at is that we can find all that God has said on particular topics and we can find answers to our questions. I can go to God's word and see the beauty and the consistency of his entire word. Let's just take the law, for example. You can take out the themes, justice, sin, heaven, hell, and you can develop a consistent understanding as to what's, what is so and what, God's trying, what God is communicating to us. Further, thirdly, the amount of Scripture given was sufficient at each stage of redemptive history. This helps us understand why the New Testament wasn't written first, right? Deuteronomy 29.29, The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may do all the words of this law. What's Moses writing here? We're, we're quite a ways from the cross. But what God's given to us right now by way of His law, that's sufficient for us. Deuteronomy 4.2, you shall not add to the word that I command you, nor take from it, that you may keep the commandments of the Lord, your God, that I command you. 12.32, everything that I command you, you shall be careful to do. You shall not add to it or take from it. See, this, this idea over and over again in terms of God's law is sufficient. Don't add, don't subtract. Proverbs 30, every word of God proves true. He is a shield to those who take refuge in him. Do not add to his words, lest he rebuke you, and you be found a liar. In other words, what's been written here is sufficient for you. You don't need to add to it. don't need to subtract. Yeah. Well, with regards to the Apocrypha, um, there, the criteria that we use in our discussion on canon, uh, we saw four criteria under which the Apocrypha fell short. Number one, the Apocrypha, these intertestamental works. I think I finally said that word right. These intertestamental works uh, written between the Old and New Testament were disqualified from the canon by the Protestants, the Protestants, uh, 
um, for four reasons. Number one, Jesus never quoted from them. Number two, um, the Jews did not consider them as scripture. Number three, major theological inconsistencies. And number four, uh, the issue of quality and standard of writing is it's not on par with the Hebrew or Greek texts that we have by way of the New Testament or Old Testament. So those are the four reasons they got set aside. And so if somebody wanted to add those in, then we have to ask the question, you know, on what basis? And is that a part of this that would be a problem? Um, if the Jews don't think they're part of Scripture and Jesus never quotes from them, wherein Jesus quotes all over the Old Testament all, all the time uh, without batting an eye, but he doesn't quote that stuff. Well, maybe that's not so important. And maybe that would be something that would be added that we shouldn't, right? So I don't know if that answers your question, but I'm trying. All right. Further, in terms of Revelation 22, I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, the very end of Revelation, if anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. Well, that's not good. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his share in the tree of life in the holy city, which are described in this book. Uh, this ends up being kind of the capstone phrase of the Bible uh, in terms of saying, you know, we're done now. Obviously, in context, it's referring to the work itself. But I know those who canonized the works made sure Revelation was in the place that it is at the end of the book. To, not only does this close off the book of Revelation, but we believe this closed off the whole uh scriptural revelation from God itself, and that, therefore, it's sufficient. Okay? So what are some of the practical applications of the sufficiency of Scripture here? First of all, Wayne Grudem suggests that the sufficiency of Scripture should encourage us as we try to discover what God would have us to think or to do. In other words, it's, it's completely reliable a text is sufficient to actually help us to know how to sort things out. Now, let me just say this. Uh, I'm what's known as a biblical counselor. I've been a biblical counselor as long as I can remember uh, in terms of even being a layman. Um, in other words, I, I don't hold to secular psychology as a means by which... Uh, we can ultimately help people. Uh, and some might say, well, boy, that's a pretty exclusive view, Pastor Brad. And I say, well, let me just remind you of some of the claims of secular psychology, and you'll see why I hold to what I hold to. I can remind you that under the guise of secular psychology, the motif, uh, the foundations, or the premises that are held have to do with this idea that any problems that a person are having are really the cause of somebody else. Somebody else is at fault for why you've got the problems you have. And the solution is you. You just need to be more self-aware. You need to, you name it. Everybody else is the problem. Your mom, your dad, your teacher, what you know, whatever. Through psychoanalysis, we're going to discover how what people, everybody did to you and made you the way you are 
and the answers are going to be found in you. And I'm just going to, by way of like Rogerian psychology, I'm just going to reflect back to you what you're saying until you discover what's meaningful for you and you feel better about yourself. Go me. Whereas Scripture comes forward and says, no, the problem is me. And the solution is Christ. Ladies and gentlemen, those are mutually exclusive viewpoints. Completely mutually exclusive viewpoints. Now, that doesn't mean that all of psychology doesn't have anything to help us in terms of sorting out issues and concerns that people are wrestling with. We just have to make sure that whatever we see in secular psychology, it, it, I wouldn't say it should be integrated. I wouldn't say it's integrated into a biblical worldview. We need to measure it against Scripture and then determine whether or not it's appropriate to apply. Does that make sense? Matter of fact, with anything that we're dealing with that we encounter in the world, I need to take it and measure it against Scripture and go, okay, if it measures up with Scripture, then so be it. If it doesn't, I must reject it, no matter what camp it's coming from, because Scripture becomes the standard for faith and practice. Where is it written, we ask? And so, and by the way, by way of experience, (laughs) countless people I could point to and tell stories and examples where, quite frankly, uh, (laughs) others would say they should have been institutionalized. And what we did is pointed them to the living God of Scripture and Christ himself, and incredible changes made. Obsessive-compulsive, depression. I I mean, I could list a whole host of stories of individuals with names that I know personally who've been through these marriages restored, reconciled. Marriages that there's no way in the world this should have been. Even as a pastor thinking, I don't think so. This one's not going to make it, God. Boom, he does his thing through the power of his word, and they're together, and it's awesome. And you go, okay, maybe there's maybe maybe there's something to this. Over and over again, I could just tell story after story after story. I mean, every Sunday I tell stories. Those are I'm not just making that stuff up. Those are real stories, real people. And I don't know if you've noticed, but I I don't know that I've repeated too many of them because <laughs> I got more. Okay, been doing this for a while. Okay. And it's powerful. God's word is sufficient to really help people. Um, I'm not saying that a professional can't help. I'm not saying that meds might not be necessary. But we need to make sure that we're measuring everything against God's word. And that's got to be the priority. Is that? Are you hearing me? What I'm saying? Okay. All right. So this this should encourage us as we try to discover what God would have us to think or to do in terms of resolving all kinds of things. This is uh, further. Wayne Grudem goes on to say the sufficiency of Scripture reminds us that we are to add nothing to Scripture and that we are to consider no other writings of equal value to Scripture. <laughs> uh, you know, my the doctorate I'm working on right now has to do uh, 
with uh, an understanding of intercultural ministry. And so I've been, I'm in the process of studying all the world religions. And, and the, the more I study and I, I, I encounter these texts, I've got one in my bag right now on, on Buddhism and the absurdities <laughs> that, I mean, they're laughable from our standpoint. But for a Buddhist, they're very serious. Even though they make it makes no sense. The guy's talking. It's self-contradictory statements. It is the sound of one hand clapping. And, oh, that's deep. No, that's not deep. That's nonsense. And we know that. And so when you compare the beauty of God's Word, the consistency, the reason behind it, compared to anything else, whether it's the Reg Vita, the Quran, the Bhagavad Gita, or the Book of Mormon, whatever, there's no comparison compared to this at all. No comparison. It's sufficient. Thirdly, the sufficiency of Scripture tells us that God does not require us to believe anything about Himself or His redemptive history that is not found in Scripture. Praise God for that. There isn't anything more. This is enough. I have all that, we have all that we need right here. I don't have to even try to take this and look at it in some weird way to get more out of it, as some do. I think at one point in this class I talked about, oh man, what was that book? The Bible Code. About 20 years ago, the Bible Code book came out. I, the reason I know these weird things is I used to work at a Zenner Family Bookstore and I saw all the you know, crazy fad books that came out. The Bible Code, where if you took every fifth letter, you get these new messages. Or you took every seventh letter, because that's the perfect number, and you get these. You do that with an encyclopedia, you get the same thing, same result. It's ridiculous. God doesn't say to take every seventh letter, and it's going to tell us something new. By the way, there's enough the way it's written to deal with. <laughs> right here in plain English. To, you know, for us to, we, we should just go with that and stay with that. Just deal with it. This vision of Scripture shows us that no modern revelations from God are, are to be placed on a level equal to Scripture and authority. I'm sorry, but when somebody comes up to me and says, well, God told me something, I'm like, I'm, 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 you're scaring me. Really? What did he say? He said to, to love even my enemies. Oh, good. Yeah, that's right. He did say that. Okay, good. I'm with you. Well, God told me I need to divorce my spouse. Sorry, I, you lost me. I, I don't. I don't. That doesn't reflect what Scripture says anywhere that I know of. Uh, so, we have to measure everything against what God says. So it's sufficient. There's no modern revelations. There's nothing. No. There's some people who've been pastors and you know even pastorettes of churches who have fancied themselves prophets and prophetesses who are getting new information from God to give to the congregations. And, and congregations, oh, really? You know, if you want to see a disturbing uh, documentary, I don't recommend it, but if you really want to look at it, uh, uh, I think uh, it's put out by, I think it was PBS. Um, but it's on, on the Jim Jones thing. It, it is, it's horrible. Because he's in front of his congregation in a church saying things like, 
I'll be your Jesus. You know, if I hear somebody saying that, I'm leaving now. Bye. I'm out the door. Because only Jesus can be my Jesus. <laughs> There's no way you can. I can't be your Jesus either. If I ever say that, run for your life. Or fire me immediately. And the, the, the church should have been emptied by the apostasy, by the outrageous claims that Jim Jones was making. There's no way. Because you for us, we listen to it and go, they stayed and clapped? And they drank the Kool-Aid and they're dead. And horrible tragedy. Oh, man, you just go, unbelievable. That, that, guy, that guy was demented. He was a pervert. So, I don't care who you are. <laughs> I love it. Uh, this, look at Galatians 1 for just a second. And I want you to see Paul's outrageous language here in Galatians 1. Because he should have said this. I mean, this could have been written to the to Jim Jones's congregation. <laughs> in verse 6 of Galatians 1, listen. some of the strongest language in the New Testament is, is used here by the Apostle Paul. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we've preached to you, let him be accursed. The word he used in the Greek here is let him be anathema. Let him be damned. Because there is no other gospel. Now, maybe you didn't get that. <laughs> Watch this. Verse 9. As we've said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be anathema. Let him be damned. Let him be accursed. For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Am I trying to please man? <laughs> if I were still trying to please man, I... I would not be a servant of Christ. I would be a state farm insurance agent up in Wisconsin. That's what he's saying. I'd be a tent maker somewhere. No other gospel. I don't care who you hear from, even if it's an angel from heaven, run for your life. That's pretty powerful. Other writings, other works minimize the teaching of the Bible. And its sufficiency. Other works often contradict the Bible. I think I've said it several times. We need to continually measure what's being said out there against God's Word. And when it doesn't line up, it must be rejected. Fifthly, Wayne suggests that sufficiency of Scripture reminds us that nothing is sin that is not forbidden by Scripture, either explicit or by implication. Kind of a positive statement here. In other words, how much freedom was there in the garden long ago? Tremendous freedom. Just don't eat of the tree. 
Now, here we have the ordinances, the Ten Commandments, and we see the heart of the matter in terms of how Jesus makes it very clear. This is not just an external thing. And it's sufficient. But apart from these things, there's great freedom to enjoy God's great, awesome creation. The sufficiency of Scripture tells us that nothing is required of us by God that is not commanded in Scripture, either explicitly or by implication. In other words, everything that's needed for us is here. It's sufficient. Lastly, there is a a potential for mankind to add rules that God does not require or dismiss God's clear moral teaching. On the one hand, you've got legalism. And the best way to explain legalism is, is, let's say, we have a rule that you're not allowed to fall off cliffs. That's our rule. No falling off cliffs. It's a good rule, don't you think? But there was that one time when people were standing by the cliff and uh, a guy fell over. Broke the rule. So we made a new rule. We had the one-foot rule. Okay, one-foot rule. Everybody must stay away, you know, one foot from the cliff. But then there's some kids were messing around and a kid got pushed over. All right, new rule. Five-foot rule. Five foot from the cliff from here on out. But there was that real windy day and that one guy got blown over. Okay, so a new rule, one mile rule. And now we don't even know what a cliff is anymore. We've got a rule for something we don't even know what it's for. Because <laughs> we don't even see what the issue is. Okay, legalism. We add to what God has said. How has the church done that over the years? How has the church been legalistic, would you say? Historically. Imagine the 50s and the 60s. And now today. Oh, the music, 
you listen to hairstyle. You know, remember there was a day when your if your hair, yeah, your hair, if your hair, yeah, if your hair was over your ears, you're in big trouble. You know, beard. I remember my first job. I was trying to hire in as a te- school teacher in, in uh, East Peoria. The guy interviewing me asked me if I'd be willing to shave my beard to take the position. I must have thought I was a college beatnik back in the 80s. And I said, well, if you believe it's necessary, I'll shave it. I said, my wife kind of likes it, though. He never said anything more about it ever again. So I kept it. Um, But uh, we add things to the gospel not just those kinds of cultural things, but oh, have you been baptized too? Did you speak in tongues? And we, we add these other levels of, if you've done that, then you're really in. And any time throughout church history, we add something other than the gospel the, or the Catholic Church, the sacraments. Keep the sacraments and you're in. Pardon? Yeah. Yeah. So it's it doesn't take far for the church, even in Protestantism, to add something to the gospel. Where Paul is reminding that if anybody adds anything, you know, other than the gospel we taught you, let him be anathema. <laughs> okay. It's like, oh. Or license. Hey, Jesus saved me. I can do whatever I want. Hey, live it up. Eat, drink, and be merry. Bible says that in there somewhere. And now we got another problem. Paul reminds us, you know, all things are lawful for me, but not all things are profitable. I can be really hurtful to someone. So I'm in Europe, and... You know, when in Europe, you do as the Europeans. Everybody drinks in Europe. And I mean everybody. Seems like. So, you know, here I am. I'm I'm now pastoring a church in Budapest. And I'm telling you, man, you go to the grocery store, the liquor aisles are really cool. Awesome, cool-looking bottles. It's very alluring. For Christmas, I got people in my congregation giving me bottles of wine because that's what you do. But I've got people back here in the States who have led to Christ and helped them leave alcohol. If they found out that I went to Europe and started drinking, that would be so hurtful to them. You know, could I could I have some wine? Yeah. Go to hell? No. But I don't want to hurt these dear souls who've left that and saw in Kathy and I something different that touched their heart that was really important to them. All things are lawful, but not all things are profitable. We need to have a heart for others of who you are in your context. All right. Psalm 119.44. Um, I will keep, 
Well, I don't know what the number, the numbers are totally messed up. Oh yeah, it's, I see, 44 and 45 and 165. I will keep your law continually forever and ever, and I shall walk in a wide place in liberty, for I have sought your precepts. Great peace have those who love your law. Nothing can make them stumble. Some wonderful reassurance. Okay, how are we doing? Any other questions on what we just talked about? Okay. Is God's word sufficient? It is. It's enough. All right. Well, we'll begin our discussion on God here. Ta-da! In the beginning, God. Isn't that a cool graphic? All right. The question is, first of all, in light of the fact that we keep talking about him, how do we know he actually exists? <laughs> the existence of God. How do we know that God exists? Wayne starts out with a discussion here uh, with humanity's inner sense of God. He suggests that all persons everywhere have a deep inner sense that God exists, that they are His creatures, and that He is their Creator. <sighs> now, um, some might argue that, well, I'm not sure that's universally true. And... I'd have to probably agree with them. Um, there, there are some cultures who really don't have a concept of a creator God. Um, some do, some don't. I should say many do, some don't. Many have a concept of a creator God, but there are some that just don't. They might have an understanding of deities, or a plethora of gods, but not necessarily the God in the context of what we might refer to from a Judeo-Christian background. On top of that, we have those in our own culture who claim to be atheists. Now, what we would argue, and what Wayne would like to argue, is that yet they too would have an inner sense that God exists, that they are his creatures, that he is their creator. Um, so we have to wrestle here a little bit, getting to the bottom of this, that on the one hand, we'll see through the writing of the Apostle Paul and the like, that there seems to be an overall overarching knowledge throughout the world that there is such a being known as God or something that is beyond uh, the person, they might not call it God, they might call it something else, but there's something beyond them that needs to be dealt with. For many uh, pagan cultures, uh, there is such a being as God, but somewhere along the line, he got angry and deserted them. That's a common motif uh, in many uh, cultural contexts um, that you, you can uh, research. So well, what do we do with this then? Well, perhaps we should develop some proofs for the existence of God. Like St. Anselm, who talked about the ontological argument. And by way of the ontological argument, first premise is God is a being with 
I'm sorry, God is a being for which nothing greater can be conceived. It is greater to exist in reality than to be conceived. Therefore, what? God exists. So now, I want you to think in terms of a secularist, an atheist, if you will, for a moment. What bricks would you throw at this argument? So we could start parsing it out in terms of meanings of words. But with the argument itself, what exceptions might a person take? Again, we can, we can start arguing as a, what does reality mean? And you know, what is reality? And we could get you know, lost in the semantics of that. But let's just look at the argument itself. Is there any bricks to throw at the argument how it's written? Do we understand the statement? Let's look at the first statement. God is a being which nothing greater can be conceived. Is there some being that's greater than God you can think about? You can think of a a being, well, then then that would be God, right? Right? Okay, so then now that's, okay, now we got, can you think of it being greater than that one? (laughs) Okay, in reality. Okay, so premise one is not too hard for us to deal with. We, We would hold to this idea that there is no other being greater than God. I mean, that's really what it's saying. Premise two, it is greater to exist in reality than to be conceived. Well, I can imagine Skippy the Unicorn, but does that make Skippy the Unicorn real? Right. Now, we we do agree that something in reality is better than this, the conception of it. In other words, if you could actually generate Skippy the Unicorn, <laughs> that would be way cooler than thinking about it. Or it's one thing to think about a Milky Way candy bar, but actually having one would be better than just conceiving it. So... I think we'd agree that it is greater to exist in reality than to be conceived, but we've got a problem, as Michael is pointing out, that is that really saying anything? Exactly. Okay, anybody else want to add to Michael's thoughts? Well, again, there's, I don't think there's an argument with being able to conceive things. <laughs> yeah, which is another discussion for another argument that would presuppose this. So they're going to presuppose some things, that there is such a thing that is, there is a reality. They're going to presuppose that uh, we can conceive things, right, um, by argument. But the issue here is, are we really saying anything new? We're saying the dog is because it exists. Have I have I have I proved it to you? <laughs> Not really. 
Immanuel Kant puts forth a refutation, first of all, saying this. Ascribing existence to something is not a real predicate. You're not really saying anything. Ascribing existence to something adds no new component of differentiation between objects or ideas. Like I said, it's like saying the dog is because it exists. Okay. (laughs) So, what's your point? Well, you conceived of it, didn't you? Secondly, ascribing existence to something does not necessarily correspond to reality, as my skipping unicorn incident. I can conceive of all kinds of stuff that doesn't make me real or true. I can conceive God. So does this actually prove that God exists? Not really. It doesn't do a very good job. So strike one on that argument. Argument number two, cosmological argument by St. Aquinas. He puts forth five premises. Premise number one, it is necessary to arrive at a first mover moved by no other, and this everyone understands to be God. Premise two, it is necessary to admit a first efficient cause to which everyone gives the name God. Premise three, it is necessary to admit that admit the existence of some being having its own necessity and not receiving it from another, but rather causing in others their necessity. This all men speak of as God. You guys get the notes on that? You good? Fourthly, there must also be something which is to all beings that which is the cause of their virtue, their their goodness, honesty, and other perfections. And this we call God. This has to do with abstract objects. uh, abstract ideas. And then ultimately, there must be some intelligent being that exists by whom all natural things are directed to their end, and this we call God. Who's got a brick for me? Something like this. Okay. We might say that that's the case, but others might disagree. What else? What other bricks do you have for me? Go back to page one. Pardon? What are you trying to say? Any other bricks? Go on once. What they're getting at is if you don't have that, you get an infinite regression. And so that puts a cork in it. Right. It seems to be a stretch. It seems to be a leap from the first three things to this idea.
Right, right. And if you and if you use the Greek gods, you find out that they don't have much virtue at all. After all, <laughs> there's a whole other issue. Well, let's take a look at another brick thrower. William of Ockham kind of ripped into this pretty heavily. Perhaps there are many prime movers. Who says there's just one? <laughs> oh, and by definition, prime. Yeah. Or maybe we should remove prime and say there are many movers. Perhaps the prime mover is dead. <laughs> Got it started and walked away. Just because there might be a prime mover, that does not necessi- necessitate that he, she, or it is God. <laughs> right? So there's some bricks from William Lockham from long ago. All right, so strike two. Argument number three, the teleological argument. This is actually an argument that's been put forward uh, pretty strongly these days by way of the intelligent design people. Argument from design. Because we can see design, order, and function in our universe, there must be a divine designer who has purposed all things into existence, i.e., the world is like a machine, therefore the cause of the world is probably like the cause of a machine. Does anybody have a brick for me to throw at this proof? Is this a proof for God's existence? This is what I would say. This is support for God's existence, but does it prove His existence? That don't that don't seem to be organized. Yeah. Okay, let's take a look at some bricks here. David Hume threw the most bricks here. Perhaps infinite universe with appearance of random design elements. <laughs> By way of infinite logical reaction, who designed the designer? Not everything we encounter necessarily demonstrates elements of design, one might argue, which is what Jenkins is saying. Now, by the way, even mathematically in a discussion of fractals, which seems to be a demonstration of randomness and random constructs, we're finding behind all the randomness that there seems to be some sort of order. And that's a whole other study in itself, which is quite a crazy thought to think about. Uh, If you want to get into fractal theory mathematically, yes. Yep. Yeah, I, I need to, you know, if you've got a designer, then who designed the designer? You know, that's the question of, okay, if God created everything, well, who created God? That's where we would say, well, God's word says that there is no other God, and he, he, he is God alone. And we then take that by faith. 
So this doesn't hold up so swell, right? The moral argument in most recently, in the, I shouldn't say the most recently, but um, in our generation, um, put forward by C.S. Lewis, um, since throughout the world a seemingly similar moral code, i.e. no killing, no adultery, etc., can be substantiated, there must be some sort of universal moral code originator or lawgiver, namely God. Quote, human beings all over the earth have this curious idea that they ought to behave in a certain way and cannot really get rid of it. Direct quote from your Christianity in page 21. Does anybody have a brick for C.S. Lewis? So, and, and these cultures evolved uh, with their moral codes. That'd be the argument. Yeah, which is totally backwards to this, is antithetical to the view that everybody has the same oughtness. Well, again, the moral argument that C.S. Lewis is putting forward here is that it seems that. All over the world, there's this oughtness that people have in terms of even the thief knows that you know, when he's been ripped off, he doesn't like it, right? Uh, and so where does that come from? It seems to be that within us, and Scripture speaks to this in Romans 2, there seems to be a moral code written in the heart of man by God himself. And that yeah, points directly to God who is the ultimate moral authority. Um, and again, I would suggest to you this is support and evidence for God. But the question is, does it prove he exists? doesn't seem so. Why? Here's some bricks. In terms of the refutation here, moral and ethical codes have developed, uh, this is what secularists would say, moral and ethical codes have developed along with societies as a practical means of bringing about structure, order, and justice. These moral and ethical codes only serve as society's ongoing survival, growth, and enrichment. And therefore, God is not necessary for this to take place. That would be their argument against it. Which leads to my favorite and probably the most recent argument that's been put forward and written about extensively. Religious experience argument. The argument goes this way. God must exist because there are people who claim to have experienced him. Keith Yandel, who is a professor that I had, he was uh, the professor of philosophy from the University uh, of Wisconsin-Madison who came down and taught at Trinity um, for several semesters, and uh, which I sat under. The guy was a remarkable uh, instructor. He would basically pace back and forth, kind of like what I do, but he'd never look at anybody, and he'd just kind of just walk back and forth, and he put forward syllogism after syllogism after syllogism, and if you missed one line of the syllogism, you were lost. You know, you just be, no way. But quite a brilliant guy, but you'll, you can see how thorough he is in his assessments here with his quote. He says, if the subjects of experiences of this sort have no reason to think that these experiences are canceled or counterbalanced or compromised or contradicted or confuted or logically consumed or empirically consumed, then their occurrence gives them evidence that God exists. <laughs> well, good luck with fulfilling that criteria. 
So we can ask the argument, uh, you know, did Moses encounter God at the burning bush? Well, you got any evidence for that, Moses? It doesn't seem reasonable that a bush talked. <laughs> All of a sudden, it's like nothing, based on his criteria, nothing could possibly ever be a religious experience. <laughs> because it goes beyond his thought. So anyway, if we can get over these things, then it might give them evidence that God exists. Alright? Well, the refutation here is simply this. Religious experience seems to be very subjective culture to culture, and the experience seems to be religion-specific. So how can anyone culture or religion arbitrarily claim that its experience or religion is absolute or ultimate? Strike five. Right? I mean, we looked at five arguments from very well, you know, renowned, smart, brilliant people throughout the ages who've tried to say, look, I can prove he exists. And at the end of it, we go, I got nothing here. I got bupkis, empty set, goose egg, nada, nil, zero. So what do we do? Well, we go back to scriptures. Ah, Romans 1, 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. You recall initially I said there are some cultures who don't acquiesce to this idea, except to say that God makes it clear that they are suppressing the idea. There are atheists that perhaps you even know who don't hold to the idea of God's existence. And what Paul says is, look, they're suppressing it. They're pushing it down. Why? For what can be known about God is plain to them. Why? Because God has shown it to them. How so? Well, for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, ready, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made so that they are without excuse. Are you ready? There is enough revelation from God about himself all over the planet to damn everyone. It cannot be that someone shows up before God at the end and they go, I had no idea. It can't be the case. Who knew? And we go, whoa. This is, this, this demonstrates how holy, holy, holy God is and how rebellious we are in our assessments to such a degree that we are pushing even his very existence down. And I've shared stories before with different people who have told me flat out that they're atheists, and by the end of the discussion, they put their faith in Christ. And you go, what happened? Well, I decided not to argue with them. I just showed them who Jesus was. Because that's the gospel, and there is no other gospel. And I don't want to be a part of anathema. 
For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him. But what they do? They became futile in their, their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. See, that's all part of that suppression. Claiming to be wise, they became fools in exchange. Remember, it's the fool who says what? There is no God. And exchanged the glory of the mortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. This has happened historically and continues to this day through the descendants of rebellious people. So how important is our missions program? Huge in terms of getting the gospel out. We have work to do. And there's some really dark places. My daughter's in one right now. It's dark. We went there. It is dark. I don't know how they're doing it. I don't know that I could. And there are other people in just as dark places trying to share truth. Trying to give just a glimmer of light about who Jesus is. For the taxi driver. With the delicatessen owner. Someone else in line the government sign. Amazing. The reality is, and we know this, that only God can overcome our sin and enable us to be persuaded of His existence. The atheist who continues to claim there is no God, there is no God, there is no God. Only God can overcome that. Second Corinthians four four. Lastly, here in their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel, the glory of Christ, through the image of God. And so we need to find, you know, we need to do all that we can to remove those blinders. For since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. See, here's what's crazy is God uses what we preach. And to some it might seem as folly. It's a joke. And yet it's what brings life. It makes all the difference. So that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. It's not, it's not about having better arguments. It's not about having better proofs. It's about preaching the gospel, although that might seem folly. But we started with the sufficiency of Scripture that it's it's sufficient to make the difference. So here's your Scripture memory passage, Romans 1, 18, 20. Okay, five minutes over. Sorry. Any, any questions? Any other? What's grabbing you? What's bugging you? What do you think? One of the things that continues to amaze me with the power of God's Word is its transformational power. Think about your own life, where you were and what He's done. 
where you were and what you could have been. And it always transformed me. I know where I was headed. I wouldn't be here, guys. I wouldn't have Kathy. None of my girls would exist. I would have destroyed myself many times over through my own rebellious heart. And then I look at countless others that God has allowed me to be a part of their life for his purposes who I've seen incredible transformation. I've seen his power where life has come. Hope is given. New life. And God's word is sufficient for it all. Because God does exist. And he makes all the difference as we lean into him with all that we are. Is there more work to do? Absolutely. That's why I do what I do. Whether the room is full or it's not. I don't care. I don't care if it's one or a thousand. The truth must go forward. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I just thank you for tonight. Thank you for the power of your word here and the power for who you are. Lord, we recognize what you've already done for our lives. Lord, I just pray that you give us... um, a heart for those around us who are in darkness. Whether they're in line with us, across the counter, the next cubicle, throwing tools in the other room. Lord, help us. Help us to be mindful of your work and to share the gospel. Because there is no other gospel. There is no other hope to share other than the hope that you've offered us through Christ. May we be all over this. May we be about it. Knowing that your word is sufficient to make all the difference because you really are. And we know it. We know it implicitly by how you've made us and how you've made everything. And everybody's in the same place. Everyone has a general understanding that you are. Lord, help us to be suppression lifters, to remove the suppression, remove the blindness, to bring light to those who are in darkness, to leave captives free by the power of your gospel, the power of your Holy Spirit given to us through your word. Lord, help us not to shrink back from these things. We pray this in your son's awesome and wonderful name. Amen.